0: With Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke.
1: Daniel was sitting pretty. He was in South Manchester, Connecticut, in the well-appointed home of Ward Cheney. All the little comforts around them were the benefits of the family's growing fortune from silk manufacturing they patented a new machine for rolling silk just five years before, and now it was the money that was rolling, right into their pockets. In August of 1852, the comforts Ward Cheney afforded because of the new machines would become set dressings for the turning point in Daniel Hume's career as a medium. Like other movers and shakers who invited their friends to private seances in their parlors, Ward brought a small group to his home to sit with Daniel. The Scottish teen didn't let them down. They started around a typical seance table, with the dust floating in the dim light that trickled in through the windows. The spirits started with Daniel's body. He fell into a shuddering trance. One of the men who published his account later in the London Quarterly Review said that a dramatic, powerful knocking followed, pounding the floor and then the walls. The table also started to spin, then to rise and fall. A violent creaking like the cables of a ship in a storm rose up in the room, and voices started to call out like they were shouting over a high wind. The table rose, then tipped, and finally capsized, crashing to the floor. They were eager to see more. Lifting Daniel, they retreated to a darker room and resumed their circle, so that they could catch the dim flashes of light that Ward Cheney claimed the specters made in Daniel's presence. In the dark, one of the sitters could feel a cold, childlike hand press against his forehead. A pitter-patter of tapping sounds skittered around the room. A feeling of certainty washed over Ward. It was the spirit of his dead daughter. Then, unexpectedly, something else happened to Daniel's body. He started to lift. Still trembling from foot to head, he rose up into the air, The group broke their circle and reached out for him, grabbing his hands and feet to pull him back down. Daniel was raised up from the floor three times, one man later said, and then lowered again to be examined. It was the first of Daniel's levitation seances. They would eventually become the hallmark of his career as a spiritualist medium. On the arms of the spirits, he rose above the criticism that was dragging down other mediums. This was not some popping leg bone or cracking knuckle. This wasn't a prank on an anxious mother or a caring neighbor. It was one thing for spirits to capsize a table. It was another to lift a living body off the ground. Daniel's attendant spirits and the news of their action swept him off to New York City and into high society. Now, get ready for a few names here because Daniel could have gathered quite a collection for his autograph book. William Cullen Bryant hosted him on New York's Fifth Avenue. Bryant's friends strode through the doorway, and not just Horace Greeley, who was already there, but other intellectual lights of the nation. Men like the writer James Fenimore Cooper, and historian George Bancroft. In fact, Bancroft was so impressed, he was the one to next host a seance with Daniel. And he wasn't a newly rich silk merchant or even a well-known poet. No, Bancroft had been Secretary of the Navy for President James Polk, then the Secretary of War, all before establishing the U.S. Naval Academy in 1845. When Bancroft was U.S. Minister to England for five years, William Cullen Bryant had visited him, a trip that had forged their friendship. With the claims floating in the air that the spirits of Benjamin Franklin and George Washington were suddenly speaking at seances, we can't be too surprised that someone like Bancroft was interested in what they had to say. Bancroft was a writer, though and a famous one. His Histories of the United States was monumental. He started in 1834 and wrote nine more volumes over the next 40 years. Much of it was based on his personal correspondence with James Madison and his reading in Madison's private archives. Later, we'll talk more about what kind of place Bancroft imagined the United States was. For now, it's simply worth understanding that his writing made him the most popular and powerful historian of the 19th century. Bancroft's dinners brought other international stars to the table. Washington Irving visited in 1853. If you know the Headless Horseman or Rip Van Winkle, then you know Irving's work. But he also served as U.S. ambassador to Spain. When he came to Daniel's seance, he brought along the British writer William Makepeace Thackeray. The men peppered the medium with questions and laughed at the responses that were hammered out on the table. Even when Thackeray, who called spirit communication a dreary and foolish superstition, came around when the table began to spin. Whether or not the spirit communications had been dire humbug and imposture, he said, the manifestations he witnessed were undeniable. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. When Emma landed in New York, she got a very different view of the city, and the city took a different view of her. Emma's first impression of New York was its ceaseless hurry and rush. She had lived in London and Paris, but there was something about New York's energy that impressed her. But when the theater where she was engaged to perform opened, she started her new career on an unpromising note. Emma was met with praise from the critics, but failed to find a foothold in the theater company. She would later say that the theater manager who hired her had expectations about their relationship that Emma rejected. We can only guess what he might have demanded from the actress, especially when we consider that one of her English friends was so angry when he heard about it all that he threatened to thrash the unsavory man. When she didn't bow to her manager's wishes, Emma was given smaller and smaller parts to play, until she was completely sidelined. And even though her reviews by the critics were, as she said, Warm and complimentary, an actress wasn't likely to win respectable friends outside the theater. Here's historian Anne Browdy.
2: Remember that the theater was not a morally neutral environment. Women of the theater were considered to be public women. They were considered to be women of the night, and not necessarily women of the moral caliber that one would meet at one's church or want one's son to marry, women were considered to be appropriate to the private sphere, to the sphere of the home, of the protections of domesticity. And being public, a public woman, was often another word for a prostitute. That is, there was a moral equivalence between a woman being in public rather than private And selling her body.
1: Unwilling to fully embrace this identity, Emma found herself facing obscurity in a city she didn't know or understand. Left with idle hands, she went looking for amusement and opportunities. Actresses weren't the only professional performing women in the city, so Emma decided to see what else New York had in store. And she began by investigating American spiritualism and sending her reports home to her curious London friends. Even though she dismissed seances as foolish behavior, Emma was nervous. So nervous, in fact, that when she went to her first seance, she got spooked. It seems that as the people around the table were questioning the spirit about the Bible and theology, the answers they received back were so irreverent and blasphemous that Emma bolted from the room before it was even over. She rushed down the stairs, out into the street, and back to her boarding house, thoroughly indignant and disgusted. It would take some time before the shock wore off, and it would take the coaxing of one of her theater friends to get her back to another seance. When the pair finally went together, Emma had an entirely different experience. She climbed the stairs of a boarding house, determined to sit through the whole seance this time, and also to collect a full collection of flaws that she might use to write a crushing article about spiritualism. But her angry thoughts were interrupted when the door was pushed open and in walked a woman named Ada Foy. Ada was courteous and welcoming, and sat down with Emma and her friend at a simple table. Before the seance had even begun, though, a pounding broke the silence, as if something was slamming into the bottom of the table. Even Ada seemed surprised, and looked into Emma's face with wonder. She had come prepared to invite the spirits, but never had they attended her with so much force. In fact, she claimed that her powers as a medium weren't nearly strong enough for something like this. It would take someone more attuned to the spirits, someone who was a great medium, someone apparently like Emma. Ada pushed a card into Emma's hand that was covered with the letters of the alphabet, followed by a pencil. She told Emma to point to the letters and wait for the knocking sounds to tell her which ones to copy down. But Emma wasn't ready to play along. When the knocking sounds began again, Emma didn't write. Instead, she jumped to her feet, knocking the table over. She was certain that there was some kind of electric device hidden under it that was responsible. Instead, it was her certainties that were overturned. She would later say that she stood baffled and aghast as the knockings thundered beneath her feet. After that, they then left the floor, hammering up the walls around the room, and even on the very chair she sat in. That's when Ada looked at her and said, The spirits have a mighty work to perform through you. And then she bent over, picked the pencil off the floor, and put it back in Emma's hand. It wasn't just New York, of course. As spiritualism climbed the ladder of prestige in the Empire State and explored the back stairwells of its boarding houses, it also traveled south to the nation's capital. Kate and Maggie Fox made a journey to Washington, D.C. in 1853. There, they found curious spiritualists already waiting for them. In fact, they were welcomed into the home of the chief statistician for the U.S. Postal Service, who allowed them to hold seances with them right there. The capital was also home to followers of Scottish utopian manufacturer Robert Owen, and they welcomed spiritualism just as he did. Others who thought of themselves as radical free thinkers were among the most willing to give the new revelations a test drive. And, of course, statesmen from Upper New York gave an ear to the message that was coming out of their region. In fact, one congressman who represented New York's 33rd district, Senator Nathaniel P. Talmadge, had actually been a champion of spiritualism since his election in 1851. As the Fox sisters made converts and spiritualism elected spiritualist candidates to represent them, hope started to grow. Perhaps everything the mediums and their friends were witnessing along the rivers in Ohio and around pianos in Rochester would finally be studied and understood, if only the right attention was given. Which is why in April of 1854, Senator James Shields of Illinois brought a new petition before the United States Senate. It requested that the Senate turn the resources of the government toward investigating the strange powers at work around the seance table. In particular, he requested that the Senate appoint a scientific commission to investigate the many undocumented forces, tilting tables, mysterious lights, and the knocking, rumbling, and low murmurs of human voices that seemed to emanate from thin air. Here's author Nancy Stewart. By
3: 1854... There are 15,000 signed in a petition by some very prominent senators and judges and so on, and it's brought to Congress because now (laughs) it's become this outrage. I mean, the religions are all up in the air about the the standard religions.
1: Despite the 15,000 signatures on the petition, though, not every member of Congress was able to take the suggestion seriously. In fact, when Shields presented the petition, it was greeted with laughter, In the face of mockery, Senator Shields himself admitted that he believed the manifestations at séances were delusions, yet he still pushed for the commission. In the past, he argued, studying the arcane delusions of occultists like John Dee and Cornelius Agrippa had led to scientific breakthroughs, so naturally these new mysteries at the edge of knowledge in the 1850s were also worth studying. In the end, though, it seems pretty clear that his argument wasn't taken seriously. One senator said that since the spirits were in another country, the petition should be referred to the Committee on Foreign Relations. This brought another laugh from the Senate floor. Senator Shields responded that he hoped the petition would be referred to the Committee on Post Offices and Post Roads, just like the Telegraph had been. No such luck, though. Instead, the petition was tabled, and its 15,000 signers were turned away. Here's Nancy Stewart once again. It just
3: shows you the enormity of the popularity of it and the fantastic publicity that surrounded this early movement.
1: When news of the Senate's rejection reached the press, it ruffled spiritualist feathers. Nathan Talmage, who had been a U.S. senator and then governor of Wisconsin, published a sharp response. You see, he had been one of the people who had urged Senator Shields to bring the petition to Congress. In his view, spiritualism had been laughed out of the government without ever getting a fair hearing. In fact, he said, if the senators believed that spiritualism was a delusion, it was all the more important to put it under the microscope, rather than wave it away with a dismissive hand. When the petition was tabled, one Indiana senator suggested that spiritualism was a religious matter and should be left to the nation's religious experts, the pastors of America's churches. But if the Senators had paid attention to what was being said inside those churches, they would have noticed something very surprising. Those pastors weren't laughing. They were the nemesis of the pulpit. That was Oliver Wendell Holmes' assessment of it all. With the snap of a knee joint, he wrote, Kate and Maggie Fox had started a spiritual earthquake that ended with and i quote such a crack of old beliefs that the roar of it is heard in all the minister studies in christendom when he was writing his article to defend spiritualism nathaniel talmage estimated that support for spiritualism was much stronger than the 15000 who had signed the petition in fact he guessed that in 1854 there were over 2 million spiritualists in the united states Eliab Capron, the radical Quaker who had been the Fox sisters' first manager, included the same guess in his book the next year. Later on, Cora would write that spiritualists would claim no definite number. But both supporters and opponents agreed on one thing. The movement was going gangbusters. Besides, as Cora wrote, it wasn't the number that was the most important aspect of the movement. It was the truth of its principles. If something was true, she said, then all the world must follow. And follow they did. By 1852, the editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, had given the movement its name, Modern Spiritualism. He offered the title Spiritualists to seekers who flocked to seances and the mediums who conducted them, speaking in the voices of their dead loved ones. But it was also personal for Greeley. He'd seen the Fox sisters demonstrate their powers in New York. After he wrote his public defense of their seances, he even invited them to stay in his home. He wanted them to hold seances for his wife, Mary. You see, Horace and Mary had recently lost their four-year-old son, Picky. In fact, four of their five children had already died. As a parent myself, I can't imagine the cavern of grief they navigated each day. And it was into this cavern that the Fox sisters descended. The Greeley's convinced Kate to live with them the following autumn. Mary had been consumed by Picky's death, and Horace wanted her to be able to talk to Picky's spirit whenever she wanted. But if Kate's visit to the Greeley's house brought comfort to them, it was deeply disturbing to her. She wrote a letter to Amy Post back in Rochester, telling her friend and mentor that she was deeply lonely. She admitted that the spirits did wonderful things, from invisible fingers that played the piano to the now-routine rapping sounds but young Kate didn't find it easy to be the personal attendant of a devastated mother. That people like Mary Greeley would flock to the comforts of spiritualism was a difficult pill to swallow for the leaders of American churches. Every time a new spiritualist gathering delivered information that contradicted church teachings, it was seen as a problem, because the movement was popular. But pastors and seminarians didn't take it lying down. Church magazines and newspapers published articles condemning spiritualism as heresy. They warned Christians to reject the teachings of a movement that was all about contact with familiar spirits, and to rely instead on the revelations of God through the Bible. Throughout the 1850s, ministers published books with titles like The Infidelity of the Times as Connected with Rappings and Mesmerism, or Ancient Sorcery as Revived in Modern Spiritualism, And spiritualism, a satanic delusion, and a sign of the times. You get the point, I'm sure. And as we've mentioned before, there are clear reasons why church leaders would have seen spiritualism as a revival of ancient sorcery. Here's historian Emily Clark.
3: By taking
2: religious authority away from formal church structures and the traditional purveyors of religious authority, more or less white, educated men um, white-educated-in-seminaries men by taking religious authority away from these more formal structures and placing it in the bodies the hands of mediums themselves i mean there were a lot churches really didn't like about spiritualism they could see it as a dangerous threat
1: american protestant churches of every stripe were in a tricky position in those decades and not just the young denominations like the methodists who were trying to grow into something respectable like we talked about in the last episode. It was the fresh, vibrant energy of all those new denominations that had the older traditions feeling unstable. And no wonder. Their own domains were splintering as denominations divided and subdivided. At the same time, they faced more and more questions about the evidence of their spiritual claims that were taught from the pulpit. What were the reasons to believe everything these pastors preached, or even to believe in the authority in the first place? In particular, most Protestant ministers were sensitive to the idea that their faith was in conflict with science. Pastors in that position tended less to criticize spiritualism as satanic. Instead, they taught that spiritualism was best explained by fraud. They fought against spiritualism not because they were afraid of the devil, but because it was so unbiblical. In their eyes, the teachings of these fraudulent mediums was simply a trick, devil or not, behind the curtain. Still, we can't forget that most spiritualists were Christians. Here's Anne Browdy once again.
2: Christians are taught in many contexts that they should try to communicate with benevolent spirits who are looking after them, who are looking down from heaven to lead them in positive directions. Whether their formal theological doctrines of their religions teach that or not, Popular culture teaches that. So the ideas of spiritualism should not be so foreign to Christians. And in many cases, they're not. In many cases, people who are church members, um, even members of other religions, are also participating in communication with spirits, even though it formally contradicts the doctrines of their faith.
1: For Christians who long believed that their dead loved ones were looking down on them from heaven, the rituals of spiritualism could be taken at face value. We saw this in Sojourner Truth's reliance on both her dead father's voice and the guiding voice of God. And there's the story of Cora's teacher, Mary, in Wisconsin. The message was simple, though. If the voices of the spirits urged Christians to follow God and read the Bible, then who could say that spiritualism was wrong? Andrew Jackson Davis had taken many beatings. They came from the pens and pulpits of American ministers. They also came from people he admired, like Emerson and Thoreau. Those, in particular, must have stung. But he had friends, too. And when he was invited by admirers to leave New York City and move to Hartford, Connecticut, Andrew was only too happy to oblige. When he arrived, though, he opened the paper to find disparaging comments from America's most popular minister— Henry Ward Beecher. And as he walked to the cottage where he had been invited to live, he was greeted by more insults. A group of Sunday school boys had chalked vulgarities across the fence and gate. One source of comfort was his new friendship with Bronson Elcott. Bronson was a friend of Emerson and Thoreau, so there was a little of that atmosphere Andrew craved, even if it was only secondhand. Together, they swapped stories and discussed the various communes sprouting up in the Northeast. Bronson was convinced that Andrew's books were good for people. He thought the new spiritual visions would help his followers to sort out the old perplexities, as he called them, and the perverted teachings of former times. For Bronson, it wasn't that spiritualism twisted Christian teachings away from the truth, but rather that it corrected the contortions and errors that had built up in the church over time. With friends like this, Andrew felt he was ready to become more than just a trance healer and writer. He wanted to step out from behind the page, and he decided to start in his own backyard. In a series of public lectures, he blasted the teachings of Hartford's most prominent congregational minister. He was unsound in his teaching, Andrew said, insufficient in his thinking. His preaching wasn't as rational as spiritualism, which Andrew told his audiences was invulnerable and satisfying. And as Andrew made these pronouncements, he suggested that other spiritualists do the same. Soon enough, the circle in Hartford was regularly attacking the errors of the church. They even put out a public challenge to all the pastors in the city to join them in a public debate about spirituality. Sometimes it seems like the attacks on spiritualism from the churches was a symptom of their fear of something new. Sometimes, though, it's clear that spiritualists were the ones picking the fight. For Andrew Jackson Davis and the Hartford spiritualists, this came to a head at the Bible convention that they held in June of 1853. They invited reformers and spiritualists from around the region to come to Hartford and discuss the history and authority of the Bible. The abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison came down from Boston. Sojourner Truth made the trip as well. And they gathered a crowd. Notably, though, all the Hartford ministers and Christian scholars refused their invitations. One pastor made it known that he thought spiritualists were dishonest plagiarizers and that it was impossible to have a conversation with them. After all, they claimed to have direct knowledge from the spirits. How could you possibly argue against anything they would say? No prominent ministers joined Andrew on stage, but they did send their congregations, and they didn't come in peace. It started with the heckling. Whenever spiritualist leaders took their place at the front of the room, They were met with taunts and shouting. Traitor, someone screamed at Andrew. Blasphemer. And their numbers were growing, too. So much hostility rippled through the crowd that the Hartford mayor had to call in the police to keep order. That seemed to hold things back until the final day of the convention, when the crowds outside the convention hall filled up the streets. Andrew Jackson Davis and William Lloyd Garrison found themselves trapped inside. The mayor was so scared of the potential violence that he declared the convention canceled. The spiritualist speakers couldn't get out until bodyguards were available to escort them through the mob of angry Christians. To them, the links were clear between spiritualism and reform movements like abolition and women's rights, and it created the kind of disorder they expected from satanic rituals and atheist freethinkers. And there were consequences for some of these attendees. Here's historian Margaret Washington. Margaret Washington.
2: William Lloyd Garrison's brother-in-law, as a matter of fact, for supporting it, lost the new job that he had and ultimately had to leave and take his whole family to Kansas. They were so ostracized. But that was a big deal, that Hartford Convention, because they were challenging the Bible.
1: But even more devastating to Andrew than any public outcry about his work was the death of his wife, Katie. Her health had been slowly declining since the previous winter. Of course, Andrew had tried multiple times to heal her through his trances, but nothing made a difference. He even called upon the spirit of the ancient physician Galen, but that failed too. When William Lloyd Garrison stayed with them during the Bible convention, he saw Katie's pallid features and began to wonder how sick she really was. After the scare of the convention, Andrew and Katie moved to the Massachusetts coast, hoping the sea air would be a better therapy than the winds blowing off the spirit world. But she continued to get worse. Finally, her crushing symptoms forced Andrew to agree to bring Katie to a doctor. But by then, it was too late. Katie died a short while later, in November of 1853. Andrew worked through his grief by loudly proclaiming to others that he had seen her spirit greeted by relatives in the afterlife. Then he took to the road, where he tried to outrun his loss among new, more sympathetic crowds. The power of Andrew's trances had failed to heal his wife, but he was still convinced it could remake the nation. Despite the fury he had faced, he held on to hope in something that others felt was out of reach. Harmony. Everywhere spiritualism went, it met a church eager to stamp it out. Whether it was the Baptists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists in the United States, assorted French priests, or the leaders of the Church of England, ministers everywhere struggled to maintain the confidence of their flock. In England, though, the churches responded with far less venom than their American counterparts. Maybe that's because the British press was so quick to stab at the first American mediums, and it probably helped that there were leaders in the English church who were actually curious— it seemed that they were as tempted by the news from spiritualist meetings as their congregations were. By 1855, three years after Maria Hayden had reached England with spiritualism, the Yorkshire Spiritual Telegraph reported that ministers of the Church of England were counted among their spirit circles. And, they said, there were ministers from every other church as well. For some Britons, contact with the spirit world didn't threaten their beliefs. Instead, Seance after seance, trance after trance, they found that spiritualism renewed their Christian faith. The tapping sounds and messages from beyond represented the proof of the afterlife that they had always wanted. Roman Catholic Christians had the same feeling, at first. There were even a few priests who wondered if they had discovered a link with souls in purgatory. One priest in Paris even published a pamphlet declaring that this was a sign that the age of miracles hadn't ended. With that in mind, the Archbishop of Paris gave him permission to try out some experiments. And he got some results. Spirits spoke to him through tapping and knocking. Tables spun at his request. And this kept happening even after he poured holy water on the table or laid a crucifix on it and said the name of Christ. To him, this was a clear sign that whatever forces were answering in seances, they weren't demons, as some priests feared. Spiritualism was popular in Italy, too. It popped up in Venice, Milan, and Turin. But Italian priests believed it was a toxic stew of blasphemies and absurdities. A few years later, Pope Pius IX weighed in, writing a letter about the abuses of mesmerism. His memorandum was circulated to the bishops and inquisitors all over the papal states. Spiritualism was to be crushed. That was the official stance of the Church. It didn't stop adventurous mediums from visiting Italy, though especially if they had friends in high places. Our favorite traveler, Daniel Hume, held seances in Florence, Naples, and Rome during the 1850s, slipping through with his network of high-profile supporters. A group of prominent citizens in Turin organized their own spirit circle in 1856, which included members of the Savoy nobility and even the vice president of their parliament, but under pressure from the Catholic Church, that group didn't last more than two years. In Spain, the response was even more dramatic. There, the bishop of Barcelona called on the military to help. He had heard that a Spanish bookseller ordered a shipment of spiritualist books from France, and they were arriving on a French steamship called the El Monarca. They whispered that the captain was a known smuggler who had used compartments in the ship to transport government fugitives and forbidden literature. From the bishop's point of view, El Monarca might as well have shipped the books direct from the fires of hell. When the ship landed, soldiers marched aboard and tore it apart. They carted the books into the city square and threw them into a bonfire. The drifting spiral of smoke was all the levitation the bishop wanted. But there were some who claimed that, just like the mob in Hartford, the book burning had the opposite effect. When Barcelona's citizens realized what was happening, a crowd gathered. First, there were just murmurs. But then someone shouted, Down with the Inquisition! Soon, the boldest people in the crowd rushed toward the flames and snatched burning fragments of paper. The Declaration of Forbidden Knowledge ended up drawing curious citizens, like moths to a flame. An underground network of spiritualist societies had formed, and it was spreading. While Kate Fox had experienced misadventure at the Greeley's, Maggie found herself in much more dangerous waters. Maggie's reputation had grown alongside the national acclaim of her sisters, of course. They were all in demand. When Leah saw opportunities to spread their net wider by splitting the sisters up, it just made sense. So when Maggie received an invitation to visit family friends in Troy, New York, and to hold seances there, she accepted. Her family expected only friendly faces to be waiting for her in Troy, so they sent her alone. When she arrived, she was greeted by a friend, but on their way into town, they realized that some people in Troy wanted to give Maggie a Hartford welcome. You see, they'd arrived at the dock for the Hudson River Ferry, but what they found was a group of men who didn't look very friendly, so Maggie's carriage was instead guided up the riverside and across the Troy Bridge. When the carriage turned to take the road, though, the men followed at a distance. That's when they went from sinister to downright threatening. Fortunately, Maggie's friends were quick enough to avoid the bridge, opting to drive on to an even farther crossing, but the group of men kept up. Their plan, whatever it had been, had failed, and now they were angry. They closed in on Maggie's carriage just as she and her friend neared the house where she would be staying. The final stretch must have been a mad dash, too, but Maggie was able to rush inside and bolt the door before the mob reached her. Frustrated again, they surrounded the house and tried to break down the door. When that failed, they sent rocks crashing through the windows. After that, gunfire began, and the whole family had to cower out of sight until dark. Under the cover of darkness, the family rushed a panic telegram to the Fox family, telling them that Maggie was in danger. Assassins had laid a plot to destroy her, it said, and they were back the next morning. Again, they tried to break into the house, but failed. Over the next few days, Maggie stayed bunkered in the house, while threatening men were almost always seen nearby. When Leah received the message, she rushed to catch the next train to Troy. She arrived to find the house where Maggie was staying besieged by a crowd. In disguise and surrounded by friends, Leah was able to make it through the blockade, but only when one of those friends brandished a pistol to clear the path. On their way through, they overheard the charges. The group was certain that the girls were practicing witchcraft, Just like so many other times and places, it was an accusation that worked like a charm. The men were determined that no witchcraft would come into their town, and they decided to oppose it with violence. Once she was inside, Leah found Maggie so overcome by fear that she was sobbing on the floor and vomiting. That night, Leah was able to spirit Maggie away in the dark, leaving Troy to return to Rochester. Maggie escaped that crowd, but she couldn't escape the sense of fear that now clung to her. In the aftermath, her family decided that she should leave the state with her mother so that she could have time to recover in new surroundings. In search of a place where Maggie would be surrounded by friends, they took up an invitation from the spiritualist community in Philadelphia. When Maggie arrived there, she was still shaken. Barely 20 years old, she'd been traveling and giving seances for years under the direction of her older sister. But she was ready to turn a page in her story, to start a whole new chapter. What she found in the city wasn't quite what she expected, but it would also be a pivotal moment in her life, because it was when she arrived in Philadelphia that Maggie would meet Elisha Kent Kane. Maggie had barely begun her sittings as a medium when an energetic and intense man arrived and asked for a private seance. It started the ordinary way. Elisha introduced himself and said he was hoping to speak with the spirit of his brother who had recently died. Maggie agreed. Maggie agreed offering Elisha spirit contact through the knocking sounds, and then he retreated. It was a session just like most others, and entirely forgettable. That is, until Elisha came back the next morning. This time, when he walked into the room, he stared at her for so long that she started to get uncomfortable. Then, looking down at her from his full height, he said, This is no life for you. Whatever the man meant by that, it didn't stop him from sitting down for another seance. Not that day, or the next. In fact, Elisha started coming to Maggie's seances every day. He brought friends and relatives, and when he started to ask the spirits for clues about the location of the missing Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin, Elisha's life began to come into view. Here's Nancy Stewart once again.
3: Elisha Kent Kane was from an elite Philadelphia family. His father was a judge, and his mother was from a very well-to-do Philadelphia family, and they're very distinguished, upstanding citizens. And Elisha Kent Kane is a physician, but he's also an explorer.
1: Like Maggie, Elisha was also a darling of the press. For years, it had been his obsession to find John Franklin's lost expedition. Now he thought the spirits might be able to help. But it quickly became clear that he had a new obsession when his daily visits to Maggie's seances became several visits each day. In return, Maggie began to notice things about Elisha that she liked, an understated personal style, and a tendency to help others. He was kind, and in Maggie's world, that meant a lot. By the time Elisha became friends with her mother, Maggie was smitten. The three of them would spend hours together. Until, that is, Elisha's work took him out of town. He had lectures of his own to give. In Boston, New York, and Washington, Elisha spoke on scientific subjects and raised money for his next Arctic expedition. But Maggie and Elisha didn't allow the distance to keep them apart. They sent each other a flurry of letters. To Maggie, for whom so much of life had been consumed with death and caught up in the teeth of a hotly contested movement— Elisha offered entry into a prestigious Philadelphia family and a love unburdened by the schemes of the less honorable. In fact, as they grew closer to each other, Elisha became less and less convinced that spiritualism was even real. Soon, he was urging Maggie to give it all up. It wasn't just because he didn't believe in it, though. It was also because he had decided that he wanted the two of them to get married But he knew that if his wealthy Christian family was going to accept Maggie into their fold, some things would have to change. Things began to blow up. Maggie was under pressure to throw away the life her family had created in spiritualism. Leah was furious that her sister might shatter everything they've built for a potential future with Elisha, so the Fox family started to interfere with their relationship. Once Maggie was back on the road, traveling from city to city to give seances, she was more desperate than ever to make every day with Elisha count. They constantly worked to make their paths cross. Once, when Elisha arrived in New York to find that Maggie was in the city, he rushed to the house where she was staying but it was Kate and Mrs. Fox who met him at the door. They told him that he was misinformed. Maggie wasn't there. He was devastated later when he got a letter from Maggie, telling him that she had spent a miserable day waiting for him, and as far as she knew, he never came. For years, Maggie had followed Leah from town to town and show to show. The family's decisions and instructions had brought her into a life that was now narrowly confining as the room where she had been locked up in Troy, With the Troy gunshots still echoing in her ears, she was now determined to leave the family behind. She and Elisha plotted their escape. First, they knew that Maggie had to be educated. Elisha made arrangements to pay for her schooling, and then he took on the second, bigger task. Leah had to be pacified. All it took, in the end, was monthly payments to her, and the family's objections just sort of faded away. With arrangements made, it seemed like there was smooth sailing ahead. But there was trouble yet to come. Elisha had finally gathered enough money for his next journey into the Arctic. His book, telling the story of his first expedition, was published to great celebration. People with deep pockets had lined up to invest in his new ship and all the supplies that he would need to brave the ice again. As with all journeys into the North, there was a chance he wouldn't return. When he set out, he left Maggie with a pile of gifts. They were hints of the upper-class life she could look forward to, from lace undersleeves and handkerchiefs to the central gift that came with Elisha's promise, a diamond ring set in black enamel. So Maggie stayed the course. She lived with Elisha's friends, studied hard, and agreed to hold no more seances. Meanwhile, Elisha's course had already begun. He wound his way north at the end of the year, as things got colder. Until one day, they discovered the ship was locked in ice. He found himself trapped on the northwest coast of Greenland. Days stretched into months. Elisha's crew was starving. He sent out scouting parties over the ice, but they froze. Little by little, his men were dying. And they began to see strange things in the drifting snow. Glowing hands floated over the ship. One night, as the men looked out over the frozen cove, they saw a shadow flicker in the dark. When they moved out to investigate, they found nothing, not even a footprint. Elisha tried to chase away their fears, but there was no reasoning with the crew. They believed that they had seen a wraith. Trapped among the grinding ice, Elisha felt his hope begin to dwindle. He knew that if he was ever going to lay his eyes on Maggie again, something miraculous would need to happen. But his time, it seems, was running out. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number.
4: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
1: Next time on Unobscured. They had hoped the warmer climate might save him, but the journey to Havana turned out to be more deadly than his trip to the Arctic. After he suffered a stroke at sea, it seemed the only thing Elisha's family had truly managed to shield him from was Maggie's loving words. One of the last things he ever wrote was utterly gut-wrenching. It was an urgent plea for his wife to write him something anything a second stroke sent him on his final journey he passed away on february 15th of 1857 his body was taken to new orleans on a steamship then up the mississippi and ohio rivers to cincinnati where his coffin was loaded onto a touring train it made stops in columbus baltimore and beyond as it headed east an american hero and a son of science his corpse was honored just as his exploits had been. Elisha Cain's scientific career was put to rest along with his remains, although the tide of American science and conquest rolled on. To honor his memory and his wishes, a grief-stricken Maggie was baptized into the Roman Catholic Church that August, and she swore that she would never hold another seance again. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Obscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite
2: shows.